I'm reading from Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, and it's on page 7. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years and then died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Seth lived 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 90 years, he became the father of Kenan. After he became the father of Kenan, Enoch lived 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalal. After he became the father of Mahalalal, Kenan lived 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When Mahalalal had lived 65 years, he became the father of Jared. After he became the father of Jared, Mahalalal lived 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalalal lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he became the father of Enoch. After he became the father of Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he became the father of Lamech. After he became the father of Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Mahalik lived a total of 969 years, and then he died. When Malik had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah and said, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Lamech lived a total of 777 years, and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be... 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men, the men of renown. 
The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. They're famous words penned by Dylan Thomas before he died aged 39. And in many ways those words have become the mantra of our society. It's a bit like, a bit like Voldemort in Harry Potter. Death is the great enemy of our day. But actually, death isn't to be talked about, is it? I mean, try it. Imagine you're out for dinner with friends, and you just throw into the conversation, have you, have you planned your funeral yet? Just see how that goes down, and then think about what that tells you about our view of death. Death is the elephant in the, the room of our lives. It, it's a word that must not be spoken. In fact, even when someone has died... We opt for the much safer language of they've passed away. Or at funerals, do you know what the most common poem to be read at a funeral is? It's not Dylan Thomas. It's one that begins, death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away to the next room. I am I, and you are you. 
whatever we were to each other, that we still are. They're, they're extraordinary words of deception. Death is nothing at all. You're, you're standing there in a room full of mourners. The poem has been read out and everyone knows it. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. No, we're not. That is the great sadness. The reality is that there is great pain and fear in death. That's why we don't talk about it. There is an uneasy unnaturalness to death, a sense that death does not belong. And that's our first heading tonight, death, a word of fear. And Genesis shows us why that is. Just a a couple of weeks back, Genesis chapter 2, and we had this good creation. We had unspoiled beauty. We had unhindered life. There was the the tree of life right at the centre of the garden. It sustained life. That, That is how God made it to be. Creation was, was God's great masterpiece. But as Akira read for us tonight, you will not have missed the repeated refrain. Verse 5 of chapter 5, altogether Adam lived a total of 930 years and then he died. Verse 8, Seth lived a total of 912 years and then he died. Verse 11, Altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. And so it goes on. Genesis 5, it's a, it's a funny old chapter. You've got Genesis chapter 4, where there's this tense murder plot. Spoiler alert, but you've got Genesis chapter 6 to 9, and there is this enormous flood. And tucked in between, you've got Genesis chapter 5, and then he died. But actually, it's it's more poignant than that. Notice how the chapter starts. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. He named them mankind when they were created. Do you hear the chapter is beginning by reminding us of the goodness of creation? A creation designed to reveal to us the character of God. But now, and then he died. It's a bit like this moment. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. This is uh, Yo-Yo Kusama's Infinity Mirrors artwork. She's made loads of these, and um, they're all, they're they're stunning. Stunning pieces of art. This was um, on display in Washington, D.C. It's valued at over a million dollars. And if you're a visitor to the exhibit, you you can go into the exhibit, you can sort of stand and be part of it, and if you were standing in this exhibit, what, what would you want to do in that moment? What are you going to get out and do? Going to take a photo? Maybe you'll take a selfie. That is exactly what um, one guest at the exhibit did. He, t- he took a selfie, and he was just sort of trying to position himself. And as he did, he fell and landed on one of the large pumpkins, and it was smashed to smithereens. Large amount of damage. That's such a symbolic moment. Adam and Eve's selfish selfie. It's all about me. And the beauty of God's creation is ruined. And then he died. Eight times that that phrase comes in this chapter. Eight haunting reminders that God's great masterpiece has been spoilt by death. And it's not just theology. 
interesting theological truth that the tree of life is meant to sustain life, but now because of human sin, death has entered the world, cast out of Eden. We can turn it into theological truth. It's all true, but actually this is a truth that represents a painful human reality. And you will know that. My brother died very suddenly, aged 23. I can, I can remember the exact place I sat in our spare room. I was assembling the spare room bed. And my wife came to me with the phone. And I sat and talked to my mum. And she told me that Alistair had died. That those moments are burnt into my memory. Because of this sort of deep, unnatural jarring. Numb disbelief. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. That is death. it's, It's a word of fear. But then, notice here, truth. Truth, a word of judgment. Because um, you get this far in Genesis, and there's this slightly unresolved tension. Just flip back over the page to chapter 2, verse 16. You just need to turn back over one page. This is God speaking with Adam. Chapter 2, verse 16. And we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Okay, that's God's words. You will certainly die. Just a little further on, chapter 3, verse 4. Have a look over the other side. Chapter 3, verse 4. Satan's response to God's word. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God's knowing good and evil. Do you hear? You will not certainly die. That was Satan's response. And as you arrive at the start of chapter 5, there's this slight nagging puzzle of, well, Adam's still alive. Was Satan right after all? But chapter 5, verse 5, altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. And you get to that moment and you think, God's word was true. It's a big moment right at the start of the Bible. God spoke and his word was shown to be true. Not quite the way that Adam imagined it was going to work out. Actually, I think that's pretty significant. We can't always guess how God's word is going to come true. Adam didn't drop down dead the moment he bit the fruit. But God's word came true. The man who was made to live under God's rule, sustained by the tree of life. He dies because he disobeys God's word. God's word is true. Now that is important for us to grasp as we sit and read God's words. We need to ask ourselves, are we reading it with that conviction? Is this the plumb line of our lives? The truth by which all other things are judged? Or are we allowing it to be true as far as it fits with our comprehension? This, this is good to a degree, but, but actually human reason can improve on it. That's what happened in Ireland yesterday. That's what happens in our lives all the time. But we're being asked the question, will we let this be our truth? And actually the ages in this chapter, they help diagnose our response. I don't know what you made of these. They are really large numbers. 
the ages here. And it's easy for us just to dismiss them and sort of say, well, you know, they probably weren't very good at counting back then, were they? I think that is patronizing naivety just to land there. We need to be cautious. They might be stylized numbers. For those who like numbers, I'm told you can make up all the numbers in this chapter by combining the numbers of 60, 5, and 7. Truth be told, you can make up quite a lot of numbers by combining the numbers of 60, 5, and 7. But 60 was a big number for the Babylonians. That was sort of their counting system. So maybe they are symbolic numbers here. But I want to be cautious because I think these numbers are showing us something very significant. And just because I love you all and because I'm a bit of an Excel geek, I've, um, I've plotted the ages of all the people from Adam through to Abraham. Here we go. I was really pleased with this. So um, enjoy it with me. The red line there is the year of the flood. You can't see all the details, but it, stops with Adam, it starts with Adam at the top and finishes with Abraham at the bottom. And as you look at that, actually, Methuselah, that's, he's great Bible trivia, Methuselah, so oldest person in the Bible, 969 years, he dies in the year of the flood. You know that? The graph very clearly shows to us death. As you look at these ages, as you see them shrinking, we're seeing the effects of human sin rippling out from Eden. We're seeing, and then he died. As sin takes a greater grip on creation, lifespans get shorter. Yes, it could be symbolic. Yes, probably some generations here are skipped out. In fact, if you want some homework, compare the genealogies in Genesis chapter 11 with Luke chapter 3, and, and you'll see there's definitely at least one generation skipped out in Genesis 11, which maybe means other generations were skipped out in places. Whatever's going on, we're meant to see death. When God says, chapter 6, verse 3, when, when he says, The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now, some people think 120 years there is speaking about a delay until the flood. It might be. The Babylonians would tell us, well, 120, that's two lots of 60. And 60 is our important number, so maybe it's symbolic. It might be. But would we be wrong to notice that a lifespan of 120 years was the trajectory of human history? That as these ages tail off coming out of Eden, they tail off to 120 years. With all our medical advances, it's pretty hard to be 120 years nowadays. In fact, I googled earlier, 117 is the oldest living person. There's five people 117 years old. It's pretty hard to get to 120. Humanity rebelled against God. The consequences of our rebellion, of our sin, is death. And actually, that, that is the great contrast. That at the start of the Bible, we've got a, a God whose word is powerful and true, and we've got creation who constantly disobey that word. You have faithfulness set up against unfaithfulness. And we see that same pattern at the beginning of chapter 6. They're puzzling verses, um, but the pattern is clear. Follow with me. Chapter 6, verse 1. When the human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. The Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, you must have been asking yourself as a curate, what on earth is going on there? I mean, who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? And what was going on? Here's what we're going to do. Just take 30 seconds, turn to someone sitting nearby, ask them what they think. They might not have an opinion, but just take 30 seconds. Okay, I'll interrupt. I don't know if you've solved it. Um, if you have, come and find me later. Uh, let, me, let me give you two main possibilities. I don't think we can be certain, but two main possibilities. Might the sons of God be referring to heavenly angels? Now, this is a slightly weirder possibility. But as humanity increases, the angels, the sons of God, they see the beauty of women, and they violate God's creation order. The angels come into the physical world and they sleep with women. Sounds pretty weird, but it would explain the Nephilim, giant children, and actually it would probably help us make a bit more sense of um, Jude 5 and 6 of 2 Peter chapter 2. You could scribble those references down and look at them in your own time. Jude 5 and 6, 2 Peter chapter 2. That is possible. It, It could be that, but I don't think that's what's happening here. Jesus tells us angels don't marry, and marry is the word used here. And you also notice it's humanity that's punished. God says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. So here goes. I might be wrong, but I think it's more likely that the sons of God here refer to Seth's descendants, to this line of descent we've got mapped out in Genesis chapter 5. Whereas the daughters of humans or the daughters of Adam, it's the same word, human Adam, that refers to Cain's descendants. We saw last week Cain's descendants were left spiraling downwards into their sinfulness. Whereas actually Seth's descendants in chapter 5, they seem to be doing better. The little details were given in this chapter. They're positive comments. Enoch walked faithfully with God, and seemingly he has spared death. Lamech names his son Noah because he was trusting God to deliver them from the effects of the curse. The name, the name Mahalalel, crazy hard to say, but it means praising God. There seems to be goodness in this line. And yet they turn aside and they marry those who don't fear God and their hearts are turned away from God. Now, I, I think that's what's going on here, but we don't know for sure. What, whatever is happening, it's very clear that God's good gift of marriage is not being used as God intended. Creation is once again deciding for itself what is good and what is bad. In fact, the language here, it mirrors Eve in the Garden of Eden. The sons of God saw something that is good, pleasing to the eye, and they, they took it. And so, verse 5 of chapter 6, we read, The Lord saw how great the wickedness 
of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. They're tragic verses. Chapter 1, verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Do you hear the, the language that's used there? It's such a damning indictment of our hearts. Only evil all the time. Is that you? You, you might want to say, well, actually, actually, I'm not quite that bad. Yes, I mess up. Yeah, yeah I get it wrong. I, I say and do things I shouldn't, but, but I, I do some good things too. But we need to notice the truth in these words. Every good thing you or I do, we do it because of the restraining hand of God. You see, my heart and and your heart, their absolute bias is to do evil all of the time. William Golding in Lord of the the Fries, if if you've read that book, it captures brilliantly the wickedness of the human heart, the trajectory we head on if we're just left to our own devices. But God is holding out his gracious hand of restraint on his creation. He, he, he holds us back from being as wicked as we could be. And actually, if we, if we grasp that, it's a brilliant truth. It, it stops us being proud. You do something good. You can't tell yourself, check me out, done something good again. No, actually, it, it, it leaves you thankful because you remember, God, I, I can't do anything good without your help, without your restraining hand at work. There's plenty to be thankful for. But we need to see our sin grieves God. It's strong language. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. Now that word regret here, we need to be careful. God uses language which um, is sort of human language to help us understand what is going on. But the regret isn't a regret of surprise. I mean, I might, um, I might buy a mobile phone, new mobile phone, and it might turn out to be a rubbish mobile phone. I mean, that wouldn't happen, actually. I'm pretty careful of researching my mobile phones. But imagine, and I would regret the purchase because I didn't know it was going to be a rubbish mobile phone. But there are no surprises for God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end. He's not surprised by the state of his creation. But he is deeply, deeply saddened. Our sinfulness grieves our creator. As Dylan Thomas wrote, wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late, they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. We mustn't underplay our sin. You'll know the temptation just to sort of 
sweep it under the carpet or, or, or dress it up with respectability. But our sin grieves our creator. Our sin ruins this world of his. Our sin leaves us under his judgment. So death, a word of fear. Truth, a word of judgment. And we'll just very briefly end with verse 8 here. It's a little foretaste of what is to come. And we see favour, a word of grace. We've seen the great horror of death, spoiling God's good creation. But, but explain this for me. A good friend of mine died this week. She was in her early 30s. She knew she was dying. And about a, a month ago, I sat with her and we talked. We talked about death. And we prayed together. And in that conversation, death didn't need to be the elephant in the room. We could, we could talk about death with hope and not with terror. How can that be? Is that just mad delusion in the, hope of, in the face of great trouble? Well, look with me at Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. It's our final verse tonight. And we simply read, But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. That's all it says. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. But in those words is a wonderful, wonderful truth. Favour here, the word means grace. It means a gift that was given which wasn't earned. It it is so crucial we grasp that as we look at the events of chapter 6 to 9 over the next few weeks. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. That that favour, that grace... It means that, that God's judgment, my death, your death, it's not the final word. See, the Bible doesn't finish with Genesis chapter 5. It'd be a tragic tale if it did. That The Bible continues by showing us a God who so loves this creation of his, so longs for us to be free from the chains of sin and death, that he himself stepped into his creation. In the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he, he experienced death, not, not because of his sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, sin which deserves death. But Jesus died. So that the last words in, in our biographies need not say, and then he died. And then she died. No, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. But that is the grace here. Noah deserved the same judgment that you and I deserve. But as we'll see, God gave him grace. Jesus died so that I can stand at my friend Rose's funeral and I can rejoice. Yes, there's sadness. There's still a, a great unnaturalness to death but because Rose trusted in Jesus. Because Noah didn't doubt God's word. There is grace. There is life beyond this earthly death. So actually, when, when you and I hear these words, when, when we hear, and then he died, 
the he becomes a different he. We can remember the one who died so that we need not die. We can remember the God who delights to show favor to his creation. And we can praise him. Will you pray with me and praise him? Let's pray together. Our God, our Father, we do praise you. These are fearful truths and we we feel the pain of them. We feel the pain of living in a broken world, a world which has been ruined by our sinfulness. We look at our lives and we know that is true. But we praise you that you are a God who delights to show grace. And how we thank you for that one great death. An awful moment in human history, but a glorious moment for our salvation. We praise you for Jesus. And we pray that we would live firm in the grip of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.